0: The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy
1: our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. I tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my
0: nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought
1: they were. And we let him
2: on the floor. It's hot, that's hot out there. let us We all walk out there it's very very,
3: very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh,
2: and with me today is... Just Ryan Saunders. That's right. Just you and me, buddy. Just the two of us, yet
3: again. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic or theme for the week and the other two hosts program movies in response to that theme typically a double feature however we're mixing it up today it's episode 82 and this is a sort of sequel to an episode that Ryan and I did last year around Christmas time uh, a sequel to the long cinema club which we're calling a very happy
2: long cinema club new year yeah well, this is something you know a little refresher for everyone who who may not have caught the last episode this is something we've been doing for years probably at least eight years now, I'd have to think about when we first saw Satan Tango. That was what inaugurated the Long Cinema Club. And typically what we do, you know, we've sort of eventually set rules for ourselves. It was at first an informal club, and then it was something we like actually gave a name uh, to, to sort of authorize, you know, amidst our friendship. And When we started introducing rules, the idea was that if a film is over 200 minutes, typically over 210, you know, that's one of of the goals, it's kind of easy to hit 200, but ultimately over 200 minutes, it counts. But the longer, the better. And we've we've um, tried, you know, when we had that real stamina of discovery, you know, it was always how much can we cram in in a single day. And I think the longest we ever achieved in a single sitting, I mean, Satan Tango is nothing to scoff at. That was that was still over seven hours. But I believe it was West of the Tracks, oh, yeah. the Wong Bing film, that that was the the longest one we sat through in a single day. And we typically like to have a little meal that goes with it, something to keep the spirit alive, keep the juices flowing as we sit for an interminable amount of time watching these films. And it's a tricky thing because the definition is very fluid and loose um, with, with a lot of this stuff, you know, what, what constitutes a mini series, what constitutes just a general television show, you know, versus an actual long individual film, because as with many of the films we watch, they're typically broken into parts. You know, it's hard to sustain something without built in breaks over such a long period of time. And that was something that drew me to the film that we're actually going to watch today, this is a little preamble here that we, um, we're we sort of getting set up to, to settle in. Typically, we only record after we've actually watched the film. Yeah, folks, we have not watched the film yet. No, we're gearing up. And I did like a little shop. I mentioned that, let I me mean, get the bank here, take a look at what we got. <laughs> <laughs> I went to, um, I used to live in Avondale in Chicago. Same and there's this fantastic deli that was even around when my dad was young he had remembered it i believe when i first moved there it was called andy's delicatessen then it changed to andy's delicatessen then it became alex's supermarket or super grocery one of the two and now it's called jajas or zazas and i went in today and i'm happy to report that all is well all is the same, the same woman worked there. I believe she recognized me. I have like a, you know, a hat that's pretty recognizable with a bunch of images from Halloween three. So I feel like people see my beard and they see that hat and they, they remember me. And I, I saw a glimmer of recognition in her eyes. There used to be a woman who worked there. She wasn't in today, I hope she's still there. But whenever I would order some, some punchkis, she would always toss a few extra in the bag for me. Uh, Cause she, she thought I was a little cutie. She wouldn't even give any, my wife couldn't get extras, but but I could. I could always count on if I ordered the punchki, she would toss in a few extra for me. But I, I picked up some pierogies that we're going to watch with our Polish film today. So it's a little bit of a theme. That's why I went to a Polish delicatessen. <laughs> I got us some sausage, some homemade pierogies, a giant jar of applesauce that is now soaked in a leaking tub of borscht that I also bought. So everything in here is soaked with red, which is should be very fitting for the film that we're going to watch today. A blood-soaked Polish epic, presumably. But I've got some... some Which is
3: weird because we... Uh, last episode watched a blood-soaked polish epic it's true uh, that ran about 240 mi- or uh, I'm sorry two hours and 40 minutes correct um,
2: so we're back, we're spending, back for more. yeah back spending a long time in Poland yet again and to, to chase all this you know big hardy grub I've got some cholesterol reducing herbal tea uh, the reason I was drawn to it was because there looks like there's a fryer on the on the box itself yeah, that a padre yeah yeah, he fits within the, the world of the film we're watching. So as a little segue then into that film... Um, see, it's funny too, because another thing about starting the episode without having watched the film is we typically do a great deal of research before we, <laughs> before we dive in. And uh, I only have a cursory knowledge of, of what we're watching. Um, well, I think before we uh, talk about the
3: film... Uh, we should talk about if we've watched any any long wow. movies this year.
2: That's a Maybe good point. Maybe do a
3: little catch-up. You know, you're, uh, you're across the country these days, so we don't get to uh, you know sit around and watch eight-hour movies together very much. Right. Um, so I was wondering, you know, was there anything this year of, of considerable length that uh, really hit you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the archives here, or the diary of sorts of what I watched this year. And I didn't see too many films that were over three hours. I guess part of the reason that I had moved out west was to be a bit more active and be outside a bit more. So Molly and I were fitting in some shorter films, but I did c- catch a couple Indian films I really liked. I watched uh, Mani Ratnam's uh, Bombay, which is really quite excellent. That's about three hours. I also watched Nayakan, which is about Oh, actually, only 156 minutes. I had remembered it being, like, much longer. I, I mean, It's I'd, epic in scope, it perhaps not in length, but yeah. a very, very good movie. Yeah, it certainly has a lot more in it uh, that befits, you know, a typical long cinema film than uh, your average length film. Nayakim really has a lot of heart and spirit and lots of fascinating stuff in it. But, I mean, I guess, you know, some of the longest stuff I watched, I did watch RRR. That's 187 minutes. That was delightful. You still haven't seen that. Nope. No. No, but that's that's quite good. But in terms of like real length, you know, I did catch a couple miniseries that I would classify as as long films. The the standout one is probably Barry Jenkins' The Underground Railroad. That is obviously an adaptation of the Colson Whitehead book of the same name, which is also quite good. But it's a really remarkable miniseries that I feel like Amazon sort of buried and only a couple people caught it. It was like never something you'd find on the landing page. And I actually really prefer the adaptation over the source novel itself. I like Colson Whitehead, but Barry took the opportunity to take this book and treat the adaptation as a very personal project. So it's really unique because he adds so much. He like adapts the novel, which in itself is, is quite terse and to the point, and he adds in all of this emotional weight to it that is typical of the types of films he makes. So I feel as though you know the novel itself barely has any dialogue in it, and it's a very talky show. So I felt like it was a really interesting mix of two great artists, and the resulting film is, is really remarkable and very personal. It doesn't feel like just an adaptation of a novel, so I would definitely recommend people check out the, the Underground Railroad. That was probably my biggest you know, long cinema joy, next to, of course, something that both of us watched,
3: well, there's uh, there's two things I can think of that you and I both watched that are of considerable length and that we both loved. Uh, and I guess we'll start uh, all the way back in 1918. The cinematic event of the year is not Avatar 2, but Louis Fouillard's Timin on Blu-ray and that was probably like the happiest I've been watching movies all year (laughs) just diving into the crazy fliod universe Um, especially you know I'm obviously a, a huge fan of Phantomas and Judex and that stuff and so just having another one of those you know and in really nice restored quality uh, was amazing and yeah it's like this crazy French imperialist nightmare where like there's all these all these spies and like flashbacks to Indochina Uh, but really it's like watching Fouillade sort of integrate like, Griffithian cutting a little bit into his work. Uh, It's still mainly, like, the classic tableaus, you know, but, like... Definitely a little more going on in the construction uh, than his previous serials, and I don't know. It's awesome. It's just a movie where like everyone's sneaking around, hiding behind curtains with guns. You know, like
2: yeah, it's so sophisticated and it's so engaging. You know, we also were on a bit of a fouillade kick this year. I should point out that I, I watched Les Vampires for the first time and Judex. Um, Judex, especially, I had a hard time following compared to the other three. But Timon is, is quite clear. So I think it was definitely the most entertained I was of the three. I was like super engaged, felt like I was reading a really exciting novel while watching it. And the compositions themselves in it are just spectacular. I also think it helped that there was a, you know, contemporary score that was designed for the restoration. Yeah. You know, th- both the Judex and Les Vampires copies I watched had scores that were specific to them, and they sort of had a theme that they kept returning to that they used as a bridge between so many scenes. But the almost avant-garde electronic score that accompanies Tim in It's fucking like, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like it was keyed into every moment and every reaction from, like, the very expressive performers. So I was... I really enjoyed watching that. That was a that was a huge treat. And then I guess as it relates, you know, I, I should be remiss if I didn't mention Aseyasa's great new Irma Vep, which I loved. And I liked. <laughs> it is just full of sexy funny people and there's not enough of that in movies today. I'll be that loser that's just like, I wanna look at pretty people being very funny and that movie uh, that miniseries is that another thing we shared of course
3: uh, bond alert time uh, is the great Martin Campbell's 1985 British miniseries edge of darkness this is a miniseries that uh, of course Campbell like later remade as a movie with Mel Gibson <laughs> in like 2010 or something uh, but folks go back to the 80s version and it's like this, this amazing I, I don't know how to describe it a sort of like nuclear noir in a way yeah. where Bob Peck plays a detective whose daughter is murdered because of her eco activism and this sort of sends him into uh, you know the the deepest darkest secrets of the British Empire uh, and it is got the most insane Joe Don Baker performance in a career of them and he plays a a sort of like shape shifting, not literally, but like sort of like shifty CIA guy who is more complicated than he uh, appears to be. But he's like running around England with a cowboy hat doing like clandestine activity.
2: And sitting at a table with the lead actor late at night, both of them singing. Alternating their verses for Willie Nelson's yes. "Time of the Preacher," um, so if you want to see Jonan Baker sing "Time of the Preacher," um, which I assume everybody in the world does, then this is the this is the film for you. This, yeah, that that knocked my socks off. That is one of the best things I've seen all year, hands down.
3: Yeah, it it really really fucked me up. It was so good. Um, I want to also, of course, shout out. Uh, Wiseman, you know, I think like a lot of people, I had a big a big Fred year, you know. I mean, every year's a big Fred year as I keep going through them. Um, but I saw some of the big ones, the long ones this year. I saw Belfast, Maine. I saw High School 2 and Public Housing in the
2: cinema. And those are all uh, over 200 minutes. You can bet your ass on that. It was funny. I was filling in the gaps of some shorter Wiseman I hadn't seen. Because I've seen all of those except High School 2, but I did watch, like, Primate, you right. know, and yeah. that's quite short in comparison. But, yes, he's, of course, always one of the, the great beacons of long cinema, everything. Of, of frederick Wiseman, i want to highlight
3: two others that like you you know came in like just short of of three hours but or, or like about three hours short of 200 minutes but about three hours that i watched as well the battle of lake changjin of course <laughs> uh you know it, it's everything uh, that you think it is and more and it's uh, a good time if you like action cinema of course and Fabian going to the dogs, the dominant uh. Graf film, which is uh, his sort of take on uh, you know Weimar Weimar demise and, and dread uh, through this sort of like fail son who's kind of blundering his way through the dying days of the German Republic, and it's uh, you know it's it's dominant Graf, so like the film is <laughs> the film is hyper aggressive formally while being in the 1920s so it's sort of like it feels like a 90s german music video set in the 1920s and mm. it's just like a very peculiar feeling because on the one hand it feels so not from the past while being you know very much from the
2: past so yeah. it achieves this kind of like balance uh, through Graf's insanity that i i really appreciated nice that does, for some reason, remind me of the other really long thing. I guess when we were talking about older stuff, I did watch Daredevils of the Red Circle this oh, year. Oh,
3: fuck yes,
2: dude. The, the serial from the 1930s. This is really stretching the idea of long <laughs> cinema, but... <laughs> hey, that shit was shown in, in, the, in movie theaters. Come on, you the, know? And that's where I saw it. I, I, it was fun. I, the Grand Illusion in Seattle does a Secret Saturdays series where they, they show an episode from a serial and pair Parrot with a surprise film on 16mm. And we went to almost every single one. I think we just missed one week. Um, so yeah, Daredevils of the Red Circle was, was a lot of fun. If anyone's interested in 1930s serials, I mean, that's the place to start because I've seen condensed versions of other serials and it's some pretty rudimentary garbage. You know, they're like kind of exhausting to watch, but Daredevils is... You know the creme de la creme. This it is, is so good. It's probably as good as any of those cereals get. Yeah. So I've already set the bar a little bit lower for the Rocket Man thing they're doing this year. But Daredevils, uh, that's a lot of fun. And make sure you space it out though. You know, at long cinema we like to see like, oh man, how much of La Flor can we watch in a single day? The cereals are truly designed to be watched uh, with at least like a week separation. I feel like.
3: Yeah, and that way you also get to appreciate the sort of like proto-television, like, previously-on-type right uh, type constructions. It's always fascinating to see that, like, in films versus yeah. television shows and how they used to, like, reintroduce plots and characters uh, of the serials. Yeah, yeah. Well, um... I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's it for for the long the long shit I watched this year, you know, uh, rewatch of The Kingdom notwithstanding. Oh, you know, yeah, that uh, was, actually,
2: I had never <laughs> seen The Kingdom before, so I did watch that, too. See, we're just talking TV shows now. Know, but still, you know, auteur TV shows, I feel like it technically counts to a certain extent. But yeah. typically, you know, as I said with some of our rules, if we're going to, like, classify it as a long cinema watch in the log, in the books, it's, it's a little less episodic. The closest we got to that was how Yukon move the mountains which is designed with like episode denotations in mind you know well it's like you know i think there's like a like a you know a classic tweet that's like
3: uh, oh yeah it's cinema if it's good if i think it's good and it's tv if i think
2: it's bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and yeah totally i mean of course but i guess you know that's one of the things that does excite me so much about the movie we're watching today Because this is one that's been on the list for a while, and I know that it's just a movie. This was, I mean, it was broadcast on television at some point, but this isn't like a Berlin Alexanderplatz type situation where the only way Fassbender could adapt this source material was to do it as a television show. This film at 287 minutes is just a film. It's a narrative. It's extended over the that full runtime. There may be an intermission of course naturally, but it is we'll like find a out. it's a sustained narrative over the 287 minutes. Cuz that's one of the things I feel like we encounter a ton with long cinema is the longer it gets the less it resembles a traditional narrative, of course. You think Hitler, a film from Germany, that thing is like, <laughs> nah. What is that thing, <laughs> right? You know, Satan Tango. There's a narrative there. Some of the real long ones are docs, right? So the film that we're gonna watch today. Our thirty third entry
3: in the Long Cinema Club, by wow. the way. Wow, that's nice
2: then. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah.
3: Damn. Yeah. Obviously, we haven't watched anything since uh, the works and days of Tayoko Shiojiri in yeah. the Shiotani Basin.
2: I mean, Timon technically counts because we were watching it like parallel. That's true. That's one of our rules. As long as we like basically watch it at the same time, it also counts if there's like that distance there. Yeah. Yeah, I should add that. Make that, this will be our 34th. There church. you go, okay, 34th. Yeah, everyone, we won't re- read the list like we did last year, but be sure to check out the the list we have. Yeah, it's on my letterbox, you know. Yeah, yeah. Check that shit out. Good resource if this is something you're interested in. It's funny that one of the theaters in Chicago, the Gene Siskel Film Center, uh, someone we know who programs there, is putting on a series called Settle In, which are all films that are over seven hours long, and that's what they're doing this January. Perfect for a Chicago January, truly, but you gotta think that's the gauntlet influence. I think so. I think so. We've been talking about it for years. I've talked to Rebecca about it. Rebecca is the lead programmer Uh at the uh Cisco, and I have told her that we do this. Um, But I'm glad it's happening. A little bummed that one of the things they're showing is War and Peace. That's, like, the biggest stinker, I feel like, of all the long cinemas we've watched. It's the worst one. It's
3: in 34th place. Yeah, it is. Next to love exposure, no offense.
2: Yeah, I would say it's, like, not even (laughs) worth watching War and Peace, even if you're, like, a little bit interested. Yeah. I disagree but I, I see how you could come to that conclusion yeah I just got so sick of having to return to the theater for that like because we watched it in parts it was over multiple days and thinking like I don't even want to go back like it's not good it's got some cool bits but it's it's a bad movie um but the film we're gonna to watch today to get back to that this is one of the big Polish epics a national treasure it seems like people in Poland generally just go absolutely nuts for the filmmaker, whose name is Jerzy Hoffman. So just to get straight to it, the film we're watching today is The Deluge, also known as Potop, which I, I kind of want to call it for the remainder oh. of the day, Potop. Yeah, uh, from I can the, pronounce that. Yeah, yeah, that one's a little bit easier than some of the other words we've had to get ready for for the on the Silver Globe. And we, to be fair, we've had some Polish practice on this show. We have. There's a great Polish heritage here in Chicago. Yeah. I can know? still say Zbigniew Czabowski. Yes, you know? absolutely, absolutely. But so this film is from 1974. 287 minutes and it's actually the second film in a series which is kind of funny and it's also adapted from the second novel in a trilogy but it's interesting because when Jersey Hoffman adapted this trilogy he did it in the reverse order so it's funny that we're jumping in in the in the second entry he he, the first film he did was in the late 60s i believe 1969 which was an adaptation of the third book in the trilogy goodness and then he adapted the first novel in the trilogy in the late 90s so there's actually a great deal of time between these adaptations but he directed all of them I believe each one was the most expensive Polish production of its time when he made them. Um, And it's funny, you you go to some of these films, like, so the third one specifically is called With Fire and Sword from 1999, and you look at the data that wikipedia has listed you can get a sense of the way people go just totally nuts for these movies you go to the box office and it lists it lists you know how many slotties that the film had made but then it has like a note that says in 1999 probably excluding later blu-ray disc dvd vhs and tv revenue (laughs) you know so people really you know they're they're proud of this poland is proud of how well these movies did because of the way that they are adapting their national history so I'm gonna just like give a little kind of brief overview of what I know of the this this film, like essentially like the history of like what it's actually adapting. So the deluge, and then we'll fact check it against uh, the film. Yeah, we'll t- we'll spend more time <laughs> for that. But just as like a brief introduction, as we're gearing up, getting excited, gonna you know put the pierogies on the on the on the stove here. You know, um, the deluge itself was a series of mid 17th century military campaigns in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But like more specifically, it was the Swedish invasion and occupation of the Commonwealth as what is called, you know, it was set set the stage for the Second Northern War between 1655 and 1660. And so in Poland and Lithuania, this period is called the Swedish Deluge, also known as the Russo-Swedish Deluge. (laughs) Um, due to the simultaneous Russo-Polish war. I don't know anything about these wars. So I'm hoping that by the end of this film I come out with a really stronger understanding. It is a period of history that I find very rich and interesting even if it's uh, a bit almost esoteric for like a man like me who just lives in the US and doesn't know a lot of the specifics of, you know, the series of wars that were happening in the 17th century across Europe, right? But this film itself is is uh, an adaptation of the book by Henrik Sikiewicz. I, uh, you know, hold on. Let's Sinkiewicz? See. Sinkiewicz? Sinkiewicz. Sinkiewicz? Uh, it was nominated for an Academy Award. It lost that year to Amakord. Bit of a bummer there. Um, Mids <laughs> And it says it's, you know, according to Wikipedia, the third most popular film in the history of Polish cinema. Does not list what the other two are. I'll have to figure that out later. I'm assuming one of them is... The, the, the movie that came out in the 90s, because it sounded like that thing just did gangbusters in Poland, uh, reading about that. But you know, it's an epic. And there looks like there's lots of horses, lots of swordplay, lots of palaces, lots of intrigue, personal and political.
3: Yeah, and after watching The Kingdom where, you know, uh, the sort of like evil Swede Stieg Helmer, uh, you know, occupying that, here we get another sort of look at a a kind of Swedish invasion. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I'm excited. 287 minutes, very manageable compared to some of the other ones we've done. Yeah, we're gonna be plump on pierogies and uh, enjoying a,
3: a colorful, sweeping epic.
2: Yeah. So, so wish us all luck.
3: Yeah, and uh, we'll be we'll be back after these messages.
2: <laughs> See you in 287 minutes.
0: Śmierci. Wtedy bym sobie powiedział: Nie będę brał jej przemocą, szablą, ogniem. Jeno z zacnymi uczynkami na nią zasłużę. Sławę na wojnie odzyskam. Z ludźmi się pojednam. Lenka. Nie rzekniesz mi dobrego słowa. Mogę ci wierzyć? Musisz. Powinnaś. Uwierzyli książę Hetman i pan Wodziowski. Dlaczego ty jedno miałbyś nie ufać? Bo musy ludzkie widziała. Spowodować pana wylewane. Groby jeszcze trawą nie porosną. To porosną. A łzy sam obetrę. Naprzutować pan uczyń. Dajże mi jedna nadzieja.
2: We're back Welcome Woo! Yeah we, we did it We did it It is um, It's day two for us We are Rested Have worked off The The Pounds And pounds Of pierogies we ate uh, If a man can overdose On pierogies I think we came close Oh yeah It was delicious though Shout out to Marsha's wife, Kyle, for cooking just about all of them and throwing them in like a big tub, essentially like a big tub of pierogies with onions and bacon. And, you know, that, that applesauce I talked about at the top of the episode. That was a real winner. Yeah. Big surprise. It was, um, it was the real shit. You know, it's not the candy that you get from, uh, from, from the jewels. You know, this is, this is the real deal. It had some chunks in it, it had just enough savoriness To it that I think really befitted the, those pierogies quite well. It was a match made in heaven. But yeah, I've, I've, I've slept. I guess it's worth pointing out too, it was interesting. We, we almost watched the whole thing yesterday. We got very, very close, but then the Plex server got a little messed up. We had about 15 minutes left. And at that point, really, I mean, the film had, had ended. We knew what was coming up and we had places to be. So we postponed it until today. So just a few moments ago, we watched the last fifteen minutes of the deluge potop. And
3: just as I predicted, uh, it was just like Star Wars.
2: Yes. The last fifteen minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it had a very Star Wars esque conclusion in multiple ways. It wasn't just the the structure itself, but the the design of the sequence, the outfits. I mean, Chewie was there, you uh, yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> he definitely was. Uh, and,
3: and we should, of course, say
2: that uh, Star Wars stole the
3: Potop uh, ending. But, you know, nevertheless...
2: Listen, George Lucas, just like the Gauntlet, must be a big student of 1974, I guess.
3: <laughs> That's <laughs> Our right. Our golden wow. year. Yeah, I didn't clock that until you just uh, just mentioned it. Yeah. That, yeah, this, uh, this film, of course, is from... Uh, 1974, the year that we have accidentally or on purpose
2: covered uh, more than any other year. Yeah, it's a fascinating year. It has a great sheen to it, very fun to look at. And it's just got a nice mid 70s vibe. Like it's everything you think about for the aesthetic of the 70s i feel like we typically find in 1974 even in this movie that's set in 1655 you know
3: that's true and it's a it's a very very pretty film as as we discovered you Quite know handsome. it is uh certainly the epic that it was described you know as being a, a very big kind of spectacle based colorful epic heroic mythic national Mm. journey uh, that we went on for 287 minutes yeah
2: it felt huge it made the tv which was quite big feel even bigger you know it's one of those movies
3: (laughs) that's true and it made poland a very large country feel even larger huge i mean also because the commonwealth was much larger (laughs)
2: as well Yeah. yes exactly
3: (laughs) I I did a little research on the film, trying to understand, you know, a little more where it came from, uh-huh. you know, because I think on first glance, you know, it is, uh, it's like a, an 1880s novel by Henrik Sienkiewicz. And mm-hmm. this guy uh, is, you know, a household name there. The books are taught uh, in schools. Mandatory you know. reading.
2: I read uh, that specifically the deluge, you have to read the <laughs> deluge if you're a Polish student.
3: Right. And so like knowing that and, and learning that, and then just wondering like, all right, well, obviously, you know, this coming, out of communist Poland, you think maybe it's not something that uh, would necessarily come out of uh, a communist centralized sort of film industry uh, being this kind of religious nationalist epic. I mean, it is very obviously at odds with uh, a lot of communist ideology. However, this again is something that everyone knew. It's like uh, Louis L'Amour in America or whatever, you know, it's like, well, you can't really, you know. This guy's just adapting a really popular book, you know, at the end of the day. And I did learn that there was, after the change in Communist Party leadership in 1970, there was a new regime in the early 1970s that was uh, less hardline and more open to kind of like foreign dealings and Mm. and investments and things like that. So it was a general kind of like, uh, you know, at least for cinema, it was a more open period. And doing a a popular literary adaptation like this was very much on the table. And there were a lot. I mean, Poland, like any country, is going to adapt their national literature. And then they're going to do it again and again and again. I mean, that's the story of film, uh, one of the the stories of film. So uh, this kind of literary adaptation was common in the 1960s and into the 70s. One of the things that I read was that there, yeah, so with this new regime, there was a further reorganization of the film units in the state-run cinema, and you know, fun fact: Jerzy uh, Hoffman was uh, in the late '60s and early '70s in the same unit vector with Skolomowski and Zulawski. Uh, so, and there's a little casting crossover between uh, between them, there and is. so uh, that was interesting. They all shared the same producer at you know the the state cinema. So, wow. Uh, They have that in common. Obviously, the film, not not so much uh, per se. So one thing that was noted, uh, and I got this from uh, Polish Cinema, A History by Marek Haltoff. Uh, And he, quoting two other writers, um, says, In this period, top management was composed of miracle of miracles in any country or field. People of genuine professional accomplishment who enjoyed the confidence of the cinema community. This was indeed why the 70s became such a thoroughly successful time for Polish film. So basically, the argument being that like the people put in head of these, put in charge of these state film units were. Uh, very accomplished good people and produced lots of good films in this particular period. And that was interesting, but of course uh, the most popular films of the period were commercially oriented productions. In fact, one of the highest grossing films in Poland in this era was Cleopatra. Another film that would qualify for the long cinema club that we have not done. (laughs) Something to to think about in the future. (laughs) And... You know, similarly, the deluge's uh, preceding film, Colonel, Wolod- <laughs> I keep forgetting how to say his name, <laughs> uh, Colonel had uh, like 10 million, you know, tickets sold at the box office. So wow. So again, the Polish people of the early 70s are like, "Gimme Cleopatra." Give me some fucking Sinkovitz, you know, popular story adaptations, and that's you know uh, that's what this is, you
2: know. Yeah, without a doubt, (laughs) and I mean it. it, That tracks with some of the stuff I had read about it, just in terms of the sort of built-in excitement and attachment that the Polish movie-going public had to this adaptation. It even sounds like Yerzy Hoffman. In adapting the third book in the series about the Colonel um, in the late 60s, he did that film first. He did it knowing he was going to make The Deluge. He, I found a quote from him here. Let me just pull it up. He mentioned, let's put it frankly, if one truly loves Sinkovich, then The Deluge comes first. The best part of the trilogy, and not Colonel Wolijewski, the weakest part. But on the other hand, if I hadn't done the Colonel, I wouldn't have begun working on the Deluge. Either way, I began production on Colonel, but deep down, I was really hoping for the Deluge instead, but I never told anyone. I did not know whether my approach to Sinkovich would even work on the big screen. Only after the validation of my Colonel adaptation was I able to officially declare my intention to shoot the Deluge. So he... As a filmmaker, felt this great weight specifically for The Deluge in this entry of the trilogy, right? It almost sounds like, you know, he knew there were lower stakes for the third book and then the first film he adapted here, because even though people would be interested, their sights were set on The Deluge. Everyone had read it. And there was a great deal of controversy, it sounds like, when he did cast the lead actor of this film there was a Grojinski yes the lead character of the deluge which this film pretty much does focus on an individual for the majority of its runtime it certainly does Kmicic is sort of this roguish national hero of Polish literature and then now here in the film but, you know, people had really strong opinions, and I had read that. <laughs> I'll bet they did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thinking, you know, here's Poland, right? This is like the MCU
3: of Poland. Yeah, no kidding. Know?
2: Yeah, that's the vibe I get when I was reading about it. Like, people had this idea in their head of what Kamicik looked like, what he sounded like, how he behaved. Uh, I mean, because I don't know how he's described in the book, obviously, but perhaps there might be a disconnect there. But he claims that, you know, after the film came out that... Um, People saw what he was doing, and he couldn't even imagine the film with any other leading star.
3: Yeah, and, you know, it's funny that so many people had a negative reaction because Olberczynski was the, like, top-grossing actor of the 1970s in Poland. He was Uh extremely popular uh, as an actor, and so popular, in fact, that he, uh, you know, not only did he appear in, you know, uh, like... Schlondorf and Von Trata films like The Tin Drum and Rosa Luxemburg, Vida films, but also Salt with Angelina Jolie. Uh, so, wow. you know, that's how big of an actor this guy Yeah, this is, guy's huge. You know? But
2: yeah, he says, I've got the quote here. He says, to this day, I still have nearly 3,000 letters and petitions in my <laughs> home variously signed by associations of rural housewives, laborers from a gas meter factory, true admirers of Sienkiewicz's talent, that was listed in quotation marks, and Polish patriots, schoolchildren, and whatnot. In most cases, these voices were rude. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, rural
3: housewives because <laughs> I found a, a great bit... Uh, in that Polish history book, like talking about Sinkiewicz and saying, like, vast panoramas, epic scopes, historical adventure stories using Polish history, blah, 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 right? But beyond that, I found this amazing diss uh, from Gumbrovic about Sinkovits. Gumbrovic called him the peddler of peasant dreams, who, quote, national self-assertion and pride, which compensated for the collective low esteem and feeling, stemming from continuous defeats on the battlefield. So, like, on the flip side, right, a guy like Gumbrovich, who's much more, like, modern in his approach to literature, looks at this and is just like, it's junk, you know it's peasant junk, that's yeah. like what this is uh, and it is certainly that. I mean being from, you know, the US, uh, it's a it's a Hollywood style film yes. you know, it centers on Kimiček, the individual hero who transforms himself uh, from at the beginning this sort of like fun loving irresponsible warrior to a national hero who has the Uh, respect of everyone from the king on down but it's a long road and a hard journey for Kimiček to get there and it's extremely funny I think on a certain level to watch this film in 2022 when so many people are so sensitive uh, about you know the characters in films and and this guy's tale of redemption Uh, I mean we're talking starting with uh rape pillage murder burning down entire towns uh not of the enemy but of his own people (laughs) uh and then you know his long journey to uh redemption is ultimately what the film is all about and like a hollywood film kamichek is he he just can't die and it's almost like a comic joke in the film which i appreciate he he continually gets head wounds and then is continually like magically resurrected you know in this obviously kind of like christian polish thing that's going on in the film he is like jesus just Mm -hmm. constantly (laughs)
2: being resurrected i mean that's the thing when you say it resembles a hollywood film the this film for better or worse did remind me of you know bloated biblical epics from the 50s and 60s you know some of their best qualities you know their epic scope and then also some of their qualities of drudgery you know like there's there's a good chunk in the middle of this film that I found like like almost intolerably boring just because I was you know you're sitting there a long time I'm kind of like ah some of this intrigue I'm not really keeping up with more having to do I think with some of a lack of um, you know insight into some of the political machinations but at the same time like I generally found that stuff rather easy to follow once we were chewing over it just specifically the relationship Between Sweden, some of these families in Poland that were then later accused of being treasonous. I mean, it's quite clear, you know, the film doesn't want to hide who the villains are. You know, it's not like that ambiguous who the film has their their sights set on, you know. No, yeah, and I mean... To speak
3: of the those qualities you mentioned, like uh, if you're you're a person, I think like us who enjoy uh, thousands of extras on screen, if you enjoy costume design and hats, this is like one of the great hat movies of all time,
2: without a doubt.
3: Many different nationalities, ethnic groups, and different kinds of people representing
2: with all sorts of insane and ornate uh, hats mm-hmm. it, there are great signifiers throughout the whole film. they knew they should have you know focused on it I mean those were period accurate as far as i can tell looking at a lot of the the artwork from the era and when i was doing a bit of research you know there was a great deal of focus on keeping everything very historically accurate the swedish cowboys look so modern though they do they truly do (laughs) just like yeah they're leather they're on a next level yeah yeah yeah, it was funny seeing how everything was this beautiful dyed cloth and that looked like it was made out of cowhide, you know, what the Swedes oh, were yeah. wearing, or at least like the the elitist gang of, of Swedes that were sort of like at the forefront, the noble Swedes yeah. at the front of the at the front of the army. But it is, I mean, just the surface pleasures of this film are are unbelievable, and especially the set design too, because I had read that a lot of the Structures in the film were designed for the film because there wasn't a lot of architecture left over from that era. So specifically more like homes, meeting halls and taverns and things like that. Obviously, these palaces haven't really been totally eviscerated. A lot of those were still around in the 70s. But a good majority of the sets in this film were designed and and built up. So the set decoration itself is, is really remarkable. It's also a great film for people who are fans of weather. Because I think, as I am, you know, there's there's a lot of great weather stuff in this movie, particularly yeah, terrible with the snow. Weather, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Poland reminds me of Chicago. No wonder we have such a large Polish population. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but there's there's fantastic snow photography, um, unbelievable sleigh rides, scenes <laughs> that are shot during actual snowstorms. There's real snowfall in lots of scenes, um, and. Yeah, it just gives it this this really epic scale, without a doubt.
3: Yes. Um, and I think, I guess, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll do my best here to lay out the narrative to give our, uh, our listeners a, a better idea of what goes on in this uh, five-hour long movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess it's it's kind of uh, not that complicated. We'll see. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. So, the film starts with Kimícek, uh having returned from uh, some war there was, like, multiple wars going on at this time. And he's come back uh, battered and, and bloodied but alive and a, and a hero. So, he, he
2: arrives with a head wound, as yes, we he does. had mentioned. This yes, is...
3: and he opens the door to the house and someone proclaims,
2: Jesus Christ, uh, not yeah. for the last time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting, too, because, I mean, th- that opening is awesome because then after he's tended to with his head wound, a woman steps out into the snow with a bucket and tosses all of that nearly onto the camera would have been great, as if we were baptized in the blood-soaked water in that bucket. There's literally a big bucket of blood in the first five minutes of this movie after his head wound had been tended to. She just tosses a bunch of red off onto the snow. That was nice. And so he returns a hero, but not just that. A
3: very uh, sort of rich warrior, noble, uh, person, uh, died on the battlefield, Mm -hmm. and he has bequeathed his estate to Kamichak, and that includes Olenka, uh, and this is, like, yeah, the, the Bilevitz family. Olenka is basically, like, supposed to marry him, and, and he comes on very, 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 very strong.
2: Yeah, he says I've inherited you.
3: <laughs> you know, uh, and yeah, so he sort of shows up in in this town, and he's like, yeah, okay, i I got all I got all this shit now. Now, as soon as he's he's sort of settling in, because it's winter, the war is sort of like on hold, you know, as they used to do, and get it all back up going in the spring. But for now, uh, no war going on, just chilling. However, there's unrest in the province, and so like he's putting down. Uh, mostly off-screen, sort of like peasant revolts in the area. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, his gang of ruffians... Uh, is clashing with the local nobility because he's kept on his warriors, uh, what few of them survived, you know, the previous war. Uh, and they're, yeah, they're offending uh, and assaulting sexually the entire local population. Yeah. Um, and this be- is like his first disgrace and and certainly not his last. No. Uh, because ultimately this leads him to Uh, basically swearing an oath to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Lord Hetman, Janusz Janusz uh, Radziwil, who uh, is basically, like, next to the king, the most powerful person in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And Janusz gives Kimiček a chance to redeem himself uh, by swearing an oath to him. However, the Swedes are fucking invading, and uh, there's all this shit going on, and they're all, like, getting, you know, armies ready, and then the Lord Hetman, Janusz, betrays everyone in this dramatic scene at a banquet where he toasts to the Swedish king, Uh, and he reveals to Kimiček, who's like, bro, what the fuck, you know, like, all these knights and all (laughs) these noble people are like, you sold us out, bro, what the fuck? Um, basically, uh, you know, he lies to him and he's like, this is for the greater good of Poland. Like, we're not strong enough to defeat the Swedes, so we'll just give them what they want for now. But really, I should be the king of Poland and Lithuania, right? And so, um, the Radz... the family is, like, a big foil in this movie, uh, because they are, like, the Polish villains, right. you know, because they back the Swedes. And then basically the, that this all causes a civil war. Mm-hmm. And there's a rebellious Confederate army led by our guy, Colonel Wolodzowski. Star of the first film in the trilogy. Yes, star of the first film in the trilogy. And, uh, you know, to be honest, when I was watching this movie, following Kimichek, especially through his dark period, Whenever Wolejowski wasn't on screen, like Poochie, you know, in The Simpsons, I just kept thinking, "What's Wolejowski doing right now?" Me you too, know, yeah. I would have preferred uh, to spend more time with him because, at a certain point, Kamicek has, you know, he's got his oath uh, to Janusz, so he he's like. I allied with the Swedes. He's betrayed Poland, but he like won't break his oath. Uh, and the Confederates also won't accept him for a variety of reasons. So he's like you know caught between a rock and a hard place. And there's all these supposed battles that are happening, but they're all off screen because we're I... watching Kmitaek, and I'm like Wołodyjowski's like whooping these people in the
2: field right now, and I'm going like take me there, dude, take me there. I was very surprised, having known how expensive this movie. Movie was to make how many of the battles took place off screen? Tons. One of which was teased through a window. You know, it, it sounded like a cataclysmic fight where it seemed like the the striking of the cannons was almost like a strike of lightning. Yeah, I was I was surprised. There are still some great battle sequences. Yeah, there's still in a ton. It.
3: I mean, I guess there's just even in doing an epic like this, there's a limit on like you can't just have like. 15 battles in a movie, not (laughs) even in a five-hour-long movie. Right. I mean, you could.
2: Yeah, it is easy to think about, though, where a lot of that money had to go, because we talked a little bit about the costumes, and that was something you and I had brought up while watching. There's... All these scenes where people are, you know, moving across the landscape of the Polish Commonwealth and in various seasons and in various, uh, just various terrain, you know, they're they're trudging through snow, they're trudging through mud. There was one sequence in particular where they're taking all these wagons through what looked like marshlands and it was probably, you know, the, the wagon wheels were sinking maybe a foot into that and there's these people they're just getting so muddy and they're moving through it and we joked about like God, could you imagine having to reset this shot? and
3: like reset a thousand people in a muddy line it would take it would
2: take hours just to get them all back in the original position Um, but then thinking about just the expenses of making all those costumes the laundry of having to clean all of those costumes as they would reuse them in later scenes with different weather i appreciated that so even though that there wasn't as many battle sequences as i was necessarily expecting i still think the money was well used because i could see it on screen you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean again, I think yeah, there's, you know, there's a limit, right? I do think though that the first hour of this film is so sick. I was so captivated for the, just the general first hour of this of this production, because it's got that wintry opening. The opening image is really striking. It's like a group of men out on the ice, and there's a dead animal that they have they have just hunted. And then we've got this messianic figure that arrives, you know, with a bloodied head wound. He's tended to. Then we start to get you know a little bit of the the sexual politics of that era as he's has inherited this woman and the way he talks about it and their banter. I thought was was, you know, as funny as it could be, I think the film is pretty mature about how it treated that, you know, their relationship uh, to a certain extent, you know, like, because he is a roguish figure, Kamichik, in the first chunk of the film, and the it's not trying to sugarcoat that, but it is, like, clearly setting the stage for a later redemption, you know. But there was some really inspired dialogue during, during that sequence. You know, we were talking about Peasant Woman, and he talks about how, you know, what would it take for... For me to marry you. And Olenka and mentioned something about having to be extremely passionate, you know, in order to, to win her over and to feel that affection and love. And Kamichik has a great line where he says, A regiment of ants can't stop me from being passionate, you know, because no, she threatens that the ants are on their way, they won't approve of his behavior. What
0: Późwać pan, proszę, bo się rozgniewam. I ciotka zaraz przyjdzie. A choćby cała choronia w ciotek nadeszła, nie zaprosi ochoty. Strajca zwać pana? Judasz! A nieprawda, bo kiedy całuję, to szczerze. Chcesz się przekonać? A nie ziwać pan wasz. U nas mówią, proś, a nie dają to bierz sam.
3: Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, I I was, like, immediately charmed by the film when there's this big drinking sequence and sort of celebration of Kamichak and his boys after they've come home from war. And they just have, like, a massive tray of meat that they're just, like, tearing off of with their bare hands.
2: And they're just chugging liquor. They're smashing Plates onto their faces <laughs> <laughs> repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. Kamichek like cuts the
3: the wicks off of candles while he's like drunk, and they're all betting on it. Uh, and then at a certain point, yeah, like I just wrote in my notes, like fucking around with weapons, being macho, uh, and that's what they're doing. And they're hammered, and it literally reminded me of the Palm Beach story by Preston Sturgis. <laughs> like it's the Ale and Quail Club. Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth style because then they start getting their guns out and then they start shooting the portraits on the wall, which are of another noble family. Mm-hmm. And these guys are all ruffians, you know, from Kamicek on down. They're, like, barely, like, you know, humans. You yeah. know? <laughs> and they're awesome. Ah! <laughs> They're just having the best time ever. And then they're like, oh, let's go find some girls. And then it gets really dark. And then next thing you know, right, Kamichek is in like silhouette burning down an entire village.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things escalate really fast in the beginning. That was, you know, our, our dear friend Andy was was busy this week. It's really hard to fit in a five-hour film around the holidays, so it's totally understandable. But I, I really felt his absence the most during that sequence with the, the rowdy boy. Uh, tearing down their idols with their swords and their <coughs> pistols you know that scene seemed as though it was designed specifically for our dear friend Andy the, I mean just Andy with his Lithuanian heritage and just those guys having just a rowdy evening you know I was like I, I'm, I felt his absence next to us <laughs> as we were watching that scene of the movie but those guys do you know it's all fun and games until they get totally out of control and that is what happens and there's an extremely violent brawl in that tavern. The John where,
3: Ford scene. Yeah. yeah
2: but it is gnarly and it doesn't it, it signals a movie that doesn't come you know because the the goring in that sequence of men having their guts ripped open by these sabers. At one point, one of the ruffians has his ear dangling from oh, his head. Disgusting. Yeah, it's a, a, a very nasty sequence with lots and lots of blood gushing from heads and bellies and all over. And the film, I mean, still has some blood in it, but it doesn't reach that level of um, graphic violence. Again, you know, that sets a peak of it pretty early in the film. Yeah, and I just kept going, like, for at least 90 minutes,
3: like... This is just pole on pole and Lithuanian violence. Like the Swedes aren't even here yet. Right.
2: You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this shit's fucked up. Yeah. And know? that's a nice quality of long movies is you know you can really set the stage that way. Like I thought this was about Sweden and they're just not even there for the first chunk of it. No, oh, they're yeah. The entire winter they they have nothing to do with it. Yeah. And then it's like spring is here. It's like the
3: Swedes broke the truce. <laughs> you right, know. Right.
2: Like, I love the scene preceding. Kamicek discovering all of his boys having been gored in that tavern from their own their own you know ill doing because moments before that we have a good glimpse of how Kamicek sees himself as this Um, immortal figure, he's just unstoppable, you know, because he says, you know, one of the things he loves about Poland so much is that every man in this country is his own master if he has his boys, basically. He says if he has people that are willing to fight alongside him, like, you are your own master in Poland. And it's almost, it's the equivalent of a big Polish epic smash cut when he then finds all his boys bloodied and dead and he is no longer the master of his own person in this country. And then yes, at a loss he signals a group of men to just torch the town and it's As one does. You know, in these in these times,
3: Mm -hmm. you know. I want to talk, I guess then, you know, if we're just like talking about the big, the quote unquote beginning of the film here, <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to highlight, you know, related to the bar, uh, one of the, one of the really wonderful early scenes. And it's like a very commented upon uh, scene in relation to this film, which is the saber duel between Kimi and uh, which happens in relation to this like bar fight slash massacre that happened uh, where... Uh, Wolejowski acting on behalf of the aggrieved party is like trying to mediate and that's when they first meet and Kamichak's like yeah I'll fucking duel you I'm the greatest soldier in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth and Wolejowski's very chill and he's very short uh, yeah. and he's got this cool like peacock feather in his cap like he's very fucking cool yeah. and like Kamichak is like a total show off and a braggart mm-hmm. and, and as he's accused during the duel he's just flailing about you know Wolej- <laughs> (laughs) Lejowski is locked in and he has this like saber twirl that he also does with a very serious face. Yeah. Basically the coolest shit anyone's ever done.
2: Yeah, he is just this iconic (laughs) stout Polish man looking sick as hell twirling that saber.
1: It does seem
2: that, you know, Obviously, this film is most beloved by Polish people. It's a part of their national identity. And I have a feeling that, you know, I'm going to start asking Polish people from now on, like, you know about this? Like people that have come from Poland specifically, you know, I'm going to ask if they know about this movie. But it does seem that the second largest fan base for this film is really just a fan base for that scene. It sounds like if you are even remotely interested in swordsmanship you know about this movie. There's like whole networks of, of sword nerds who are obsessed with this scene because it's it's extended and it's one of the most authentic portrayals of a specific type of Polish saber dueling. So it's like a specific class of swordsmanship that was unique to the Commonwealth. It's like when we filmed
3: 16-inch softball in Orders and we didn't think about the fact that that like basically only exists in Chicago. Right. That's not a- universal (laughs) vision. Uh, So like that, yeah, it's like Uh, an extended very pleasurable sword fighting sequence Mm -hmm. in the Uh, rain looking very cool in the rain with all these just yeah like you know huge dudes standing around uh we were joking throughout the entire experience that like every third character looks like jaws from james bond and there's like two guys in particular who stick around the entire film and they're just like two of the largest men i've ever seen and they have these like page-ish haircuts so like they totally look like uh, what's his name?
2: Har- uh, not Harvey Keitel. Uh, <laughs> Richard Keel. I was like Richard Carn. That's <laughs> that's not Jaws. But so. no, they they look especially look huge next to beautiful, stout uh, Colonel Wolajkowski. You know, yes. so but they're yeah, big big guys. You know, wearing their fur, uh, domineering presences yes. in those scenes. Now.
3: Again, once the political intrigue, you know, takes off, uh, it's about, you know, Kimichek trying to protect Olenka, who he's, you know, in love with. And she's in love with him, but there's, you know, there's distance between them for a variety of reasons, and especially the political situation. One of them just being the, uh, having she had been inherited
2: by him. Well, yeah, that's that's problem number one. But
3: problem number two is that, yeah, she's loyal to the king, while he, of course,
2: uh, for a time, is not. Right, and what? what is that actress's name? Because she's she was one of the people you were referring to that is a crossover in the the yes. work of Andre Malgrzada Ju- Browneck. Right, and she's in Juvoski's The Devils or The Devil. Yes, big time. She's great. Yeah, she, she's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of a a thankless role because of the way that. Obviously, her station in life and as it's been depicted in the book, you know there's not a lot of activity for her to do in the film. However, I do think she brings with it like a great deal of psychological weight. I yeah. think like she's doing interesting things with her performance as much as she could yeah in but it's in the a, it's a
3: man of action movie. So yeah. she's just mm-hmm. uh, kidnapped or being wooed uh, by the nefarious prince, you know? Yeah. Like, she's being... in all these, like, aristocratic settings, like, brooding, mm. uh, while Kamichak gets to be, like, cracking wise and cracking skulls, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Obviously. Right. And so, like, that goes throughout the whole film. Like, you know, her situation in relation to all of this. Um, especially when Kimi-check, uh finally sees the light. You know, and I guess like it, it is interesting to a certain extent that in this Polish sort of national epic, like the, the protagonist is not the perfect Polish hero. Like that's yeah. Wolodzowski, that's the other guys. Mm-hmm. Those are the Confederates who are like, we'll we'll fight the Swedes to the death right now, like always and, and forever, you know? And because Kamiczak is like this figure in the middle, um, it, it does bring, yeah, like, it, it is, I guess, satisfying in terms of being, like, a five-hour-long movie. I mean, like, it really does, like, put him through the ringer and him getting his redemption and earning back his reputation, like, is certainly earned. Like, yeah, not it, just in one thing he does, <laughs> but, like, a million things. Lots right? of
2: things. It really builds. And it takes time for that to happen, you know? And I think that that's something that, the you know the film earns its five hour runtime through that character development. I mean you know the the Colonel Woledgeowski movie is not five hours long. He's less ambiguous of a national hero. He's and he's fighting the Muslims in that one, so oh, it's wow. like very
3: cut and dry. Yeah, you know?
2: yeah um
3: <laughs> I know, because I was thinking, like, I wonder if the movies, like, the battles we didn't see from this. Like, no, it's like he repels the Muslim invaders.
2: Wow. It is the same actor. So, you know, if people do t- 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 check out The Deluge Potop and like Colonel Wolodowski as much as we did, there is a whole film with that same guy, that same cool, stout man playing the colonel you think you're gonna watch those i'm interested Uh, i'm not
3: gonna lie especially like the 1990s one just because of like how different it's gonna like look and feel Mm -hmm. um i think you
2: know yeah and they're not five hours long i think each one the, the colonel's film is under three i can't remember what the 90s one is but i mean yeah like so you know as we said this is when things really become a lot of conversations inside these palaces we start to learn a bit more about these families there's there's definitely our our arch nemesis of the film the ultimate villain is uh, a prince um, who you know we disparagingly called bogus slaw because that's his name. I mean, it's that's simply what it is. It's bogus slaw. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've had my fair share of bogus <laughs> slaw, and we all it, have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Listen, we've we've been to great Polish restaurants, and we've been to some dives too. And there's there's certainly been some bogus slaw uh, on on the plate in front of me. And um, this man and his performance really does embody that. He's he's a, a noble dandy with his unibrow and his. Um, His hair brooch. Yeah, I mean, oh, God, the amount of wigs that I mean, he's yeah, he's the opposite
3: of uh, Kamicek. Yes. You know, he's, like, this perfect evil aristocrat. Mm -hmm. Like, he loves to dance, he loves to drink, he wants to be king, but isn't really doing anything to earn it, actually thinks he deserves it, you know, because he's basically in the richest family in Poland. Uh, And, yeah, it's like... One thing that really, I guess, surprised me, but it makes sense, is at a certain point, Kamichek, like realizing the error of his ways, uh, decides to betray the Radzivill family, and that includes Boguslaw, and he tries to <laughs> kidnap him. But Boguslav flips the tables and fucks them all up, and it's like, of course, he's also a skilled fighter. You know, he's this total like, just decadent dandy, but like, he'll fuck you up with a sword and on a horse, probably because he's had so much good like training. That's you know? true, you
2: know. But I think it's it's also important to point out that he shoots, he like pulls, <laughs> Kamichek's pistol out of his holster, shoots him in the head in the at po- at point blank range. It was a shitty gun, but yeah, but. But like misses basically it scratches the side of his well, head more than scratch like no it, it's a deep <laughs> and serious wound it's a flesh wound and next right next to his eye right and his brain you know but i mean listen to be honest even with a gun like that i mean he was on a horse but like i don't know i probably could have got kamichek in the face you know Well, he was surrounded. There was a lot going on. Yeah. And And he he
3: lives you know, he lives to see another day. It was an impressive maneuver. That's all I'm saying. I didn't expect him of all people after how we're introduced
2: to him, you know. Exactly. This guy that's like bringing the latest dancing trends from France (laughs) to the Commonwealth, you know? Like I wasn't expecting that guy to like pull yeah, pull a stunt like that. Um yet yet he did. Um so From
3: there, Kamichek sets his sights on aiding the resistance, but he can't do it outright, because all of the Confederates, Wolejasky on down, think he's a traitor, and they would basically kill him on sight as a matter of military principle. And so he's like, all right, I got to... I gotta help the war effort, but like do it my way. And he builds up his own gang—that's sort of like their own, uh, you know, sort of crew that is was working to aid the Confederates, but not uh, work directly with them. And so they're like this kind of like espionage unit slash yeah. like commando unit that's mm-hmm. just like operating on their own but for the greater good for
2: Poland. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting cuz the, you know, that moment when he gets shot in the head and and Boguslaw escapes this like initial kidnapping. That's the end of part 1. So there this film did have an intermission. It was broken into two parts. I believe it was presented theatrically as one whole experience, but it does have a, like there's a part there's an end of part 1 and a beginning of part 2. And the The toughest sits throughout this movie are the middle of part one, because part one ends so strong with that head wound with with Boguslaw, but I love the way that part two begins, which is when we're introduced to the, I don't want to call him a hermit, but like the father with his twin boys that are, yeah, oh man, that's a great sequence because, correct me if I'm wrong, Kamichek just kind of. Shack's up in this home as he's like trying to take care of himself and like kind of escape out there and it's, it's that man's house and he... No, no. it's someone else's
3: house who oh. runs away at the sight of them. So they're just like camping in this person's house who ran away when she saw like Soroka looking like Jaws and Kamichak with like With a head wound or whatever. Right.
2: But the one thing that confused me is that Keemlets, when he shows up with his twin boys, uh, and his twin boys are like fully grown men that speak like perfectly in sync, like that stupid (laughs) Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, where it's like everything is just slightly out of sync, but they they are matching mustaches. Yeah, they look identical and they say the same stuff. But that father knows exactly where the hidden. Mead storage center is near that home. That's what I was, that's why I thought maybe he lived there because he's like, boys, we got to get the mead for Kamichik, and they open up. There's this stump, this big stump, and they remove like a giant chunk of the tree, and that's where like the mead is stored. Well, he's he was living in the forest with his sons. They're on the run. They, that's he true. talks about
3: eating mushrooms, He was like, "We've been surviving
2: on mushrooms." That's true. Uh, yeah, maybe he just they were studying that home and knew where that family. Yeah, <laughs> they, they also are
3: basically horse thieves. You know. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, they're great. You know, like those those two sons, uh, as I joke, they're like Johnny Toe characters. Yeah. like these guys that speak at the same time and then are like also like in the action, you know, mm-hmm. they're like the the brothers from drug war. Yeah. you know, this sort of like odd comic. Uh, side relief you know totally uh, bumbling and, fools yeah and, and the funny thing too is that like Keemlitz is like always berating them but he's exactly like them and he's always like bumbling and fucking up but yeah. like he's just their dad so he's like I didn't do that or whatever <laughs> like it's very very funny dynamic
2: I love when Keemlitz does tend to that point blank head wound because he his his way of dealing with it is this nice like homegrown medicine where he takes a big piece of like pita bread uh, takes a couple bites of it, chews it up in his mouth, and then grabs spiderweb above the rafters in this home, spits out his chewed up bread, wraps it in spiderweb, and then like sticks it on Kmita's head. That's what I'm gonna do next time. Then I I take a blow to the noggin.
3: <laughs> the big sort of centerpiece of part two is the uh, siege and defense of the monastery, mm-hmm. and. In addition to not only like Sienkiewicz being this kind of like national uh, author, but that defense of the monastery, I learned, uh, is a very, very famous event in Polish history, so much so that there are other films about that event oh, by, wow. made by other directors, like Defense of the Monastery or whatever. Like it's been fictionalized several times. So uh, again, some, something extremely familiar to the audiences. Mm-hmm. And this is again in Kamichek's you know ultimate redemption tale. At this point, his his name has gotten so bad that he's changed it, and he's uh, he's. As he goes to, you know, they like steal some information from the Swedes, figuring out they're going to attack this monastery, even though they said they wouldn't. They said they wouldn't. Yeah, uh, and and Kamichuk's like goes to the monastery and pleads with the priests and is like, "You were gonna be attacked. Like you need to, set, need to set up defenses." And basically, like obviously, this isn't what happened in history because Kamichek's not real. Because um, I feel like the uh, one of the other movies I read was like about the abbot. You know, it was oh, like oh, wow. about the abbot that defended. You yeah, know, not Kamichek fake guy. Yeah. Uh, but in this, it's all Kamichek's idea, like it's this huge scene where he has he has to persuade them and then yeah for for a million minutes they're they're defending this monastery from the swedish army and it includes the extremely daring moment where kimichek blows up the biggest cannon in the swedish army crawling up to it basically and <laughs> stuffing it with gunpowder dressed as a swedish cowboy yeah dressed as a swedish cowboy with like uh, it's kind of implied that he just like made that outfit
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's 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 it's, it's, there's some gaps I was a little confused about, but it is a really stunning sequence, and it lives up to you know what you would want from a big Polish epic because they're firing off all these cannons while simultaneously just munching on smoked sausage. Yeah, his guys in particular are like running around pushing cannons with
3: one hand and sausages in the other. And this is not a joke. No,
2: we're we're not exaggerating. (laughs) Like, this is literally what happens in this film. But that, you know, that's the thing. It's like, this is one of the great smoked meat films. You had alluded to it earlier. There's so much smoked meat throughout. And it just seems like it's just one of those symbols of Polish identity, like these guys firing off cannons, at the Swedes, who said they wouldn't attack the monastery. And, you know, that's the thing, right? Like, you can never trust the Protestants. That's, like, yeah. one of the underlying themes of this film because Poland, deeply Catholic country, right? So, of course, it's like, well, how could you trust the Protestants? You know, of course they're going to come after our monastery. Yep. So, I could see why, like, in the national psyche, like, that particular battle was of, like, a great significance. But it's cool. Yeah, that, that scene's also in the snow. So, it looks really awesome. Um, yeah, I could have just watched those cannons be, like, fired and reloaded for an hour, honestly. it That stuff was really captivating. Yeah, a lot
3: of emphasis there, too, on, like... The Swedish, the, the Swedish, uh, the, Sweet, <laughs> the Swedish officers like being like, We have the best technology, you know, and, yeah. and that sort of thing of like, right, the Polish, they're always underdogs, all these huge nations are always invading them, you mm-hmm. know, and like that's that's true, it's true, um, you know, for the most part, and so like that's a part of it as
2: well, you know, like you get that feeling, yeah. I read that it was, um an extreme production hassle shooting the the battle sequences with these cannons because they they couldn't leave the cannons out overnight. Uh, It was illegal to have, you know, active weapons out just, like, on the landscape. So those cannons are f- massive. They are huge, extremely heavy cannons. And so every night after they would wrap, they would have to, like, store them in a facility. Uh, so just thinking again about, well, oh. how come we didn't see too many battles? It's like, well, because just practically yeah. it was a very There's difficult There's a whole thing. day to get the cannon out of the, out of the warehouse. Exactly, yeah. That's what it sounds like. They probably should just, like, hire a guy to, like, camp with them and say it was actively using them. I don't know what the laws and well, communist yeah. Polinar, but very cool scene. Nonetheless, very yes. cool. He does blow up that cannon. And and that's when, yeah, that's when he gets captured and, and tortured wild torture scene. Kamichek is strung up and a man like has a torch and he's just like rubbing it against his belly. And yeah. he's like strung up with his arms and legs, like behind his head. Yeah. Uh, I just want to point out too, is something that just like was jogged in my memory when he blows up
3: the cannon and he stuffs all the gunpowder in there. He says, uh, Here's a sausage for you, doggy.
2: It's true, yeah, that kind of like ties up the thread there, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. That's what I was that. thinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just like looking over my notes. Oh yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean like I, I noted that as well. He is like Kimczek is like a like an eighties American action star. Like yeah. he's got one liners, you know, he's got swag, he's got jokes like uh throughout, you know, and he also like feels the weight of the world and the weight of the, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth on his shoulders. And after his, you know, heroic defense of the monastery uh he links up finally with the king and Władysławski and then of course the final third of the movie is like the march of the rebels you know first they defeat Redswill and then they take on the Swedes directly right. and that's the climactic uh, sort of war and peace style yeah uh, Epic scene with thousands of people
2: and cannons and
3: courses and, and all this stuff. And, yeah. Yeah.
2: There's a really cool raid sequence of sorts or a surprise attack on a, a commando very, raid. A commando hmm. raid. Well, there's, well, not this specifically, right? There's that one great surprise attack on a very wintry road where all these dudes come out of the trees and they try to attack the the convoy that's like bringing the king you know down farther south or whatever and they 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 come out there everyone's got like these huge fur coats on and it's like a it's an intense battle, and this is just another one of the things that, as we talked about, the, the evidence of Khmicek, like getting in the good graces of the king, redeeming himself. This is like one of the final things where the king is like, I cannot believe I ever doubted this man because of the courage he showed. in, in that, in that fight. Um, it was funny when doing a little bit of research, I've actually been there (laughs) where that that raid happens. Um, it was filmed in Zakopane in Poland and I, I I have been to Poland. So we did go down there, um, and and got lost because there's not a lot of English speaking people in Zakopane, like outside of these big metro areas. But that was where I got my first like real, that was the first mountain hike I ever did. Outside of like a trip to the Smokies, but that's where I got the taste for it, and it was where like that battle is, like in the dude, mountains of Zakopane. Like dude, you're
3: just like I'm just like Kamichak. Oh yeah. my god,
2: <laughs> a turning point in my life. Poland was really cool, though. I talk about the meat I ate there, man. Ah, oh, these platters of sausages is great. I love that scene too because it's indicative of the. Uh
3: sort of like revolutionary tactics of the the rebel army where yeah. you know they don't have the numbers that the swedish army has but they just like are popping out of their popping out of the snow with their fur hats on you know and that that scene is very dramatic like in particular kamicek starts the whole skirmish by going up to the, the swedish officer and just shooting him in the face yeah i mean it is like total deranged hero syndrome stuff and of of course, he's once again almost dead, but he lives to see another He day. lives, and it, again,
2: it's funny, almost dead from a head wound, because they lift him up from the snow, and his, his forehead is bloodied, and he's very, very pale. Head. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't count, but I, I would say it's like six or seven like, I would, yeah, major either. serious head wounds in the
3: five yeah. hours, and it's obviously by design. It's like mm-hmm. a gag, and it's also like, yeah, this
2: sort of, like, Christ-like thing. It, it, you know what? I wonder if it's seven, because that's often, like, thought of as, like, a, a holy oh, yeah. number in certain respects. Like, it's very saintly for, like, seven things to have built up. Um, I could be just making that up, but I feel like I that remember that. sounds then. so good, though. Yeah. Print the legend. Print yeah. the legend, yeah. Kamichuk took seven wounds to the head as contributing to his redemption.
3: Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because although this film is uh you know this sort of like straightforward classical style uh hollywood-esque you know epic uh it really can be be read in a lot in in many many different ways which i think is kind of interesting because um, just thinking about like yeah there's a lot of you know christian catholic allegory going on mm-hmm. but there's also you know like other allegory going on you know and as we talked about on the silver globe last week um, I don't think it's a stretch to apply you know some of the things uh, in this film to the then present day uh, of Poland and In that history book I was reading, they had a quote from Kapuscinski, the writer, where he talks about, like, in Poland, every text is read as elusive. Every written situation uh, is treated as immediate and applied to the situation in Poland. Mm. You know, like, that's what they do. And there's, like, a tradition of that. And when I read that, I started thinking, like, oh, okay, you know, so, like, thinking what we were talking about, (laughs) you know, the sort of, like, Cold War politics of On the Silver Globe. In this, I'm thinking, like, all right, so, like, in this era of, of somewhat, like, reform, you know, because this is after, yeah, sort of, like, difficult period in the in the late 50s and 60s and before martial law in the 80s, right? And so this is kind of, like, a, a sort of thaw period in Poland for all that stuff. And it's, like, the Radzuels are... Uh, you know the the Russian-backed like Polish communist leaders because they're uh, they're also you know part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but they side with the Swedes, A.K.A. Russia, yeah. thing, you know, uh. so I think there's something maybe in there. I'm not smart enough to like really pick up yeah. on like too many details. Well, it's but... like
2: complicated again, because there was also a war with Russia at the same time in history with this war. That's kind sure, of but it's never to... mentioned in this movie. Yeah,
3: no, no, talk about politics, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, in communist Poland. Yeah, there's I think maybe one mention of Russia. Mm hmm. And they were, like, at war with Russia around this time. So that's completely elided. And so is there was a conflict with the Cossacks as well Uh, that's not mentioned at all. And so it really just hones in on, like, the Swedes. The Swedes are bad. But again, I'm just, like guessing digging into sure, like the, but that it's sort of allegory it's
2: interesting because i feel like one of the only references to the war with russia in the film is so indirect it's more just fatigue of the fact that there are multiple wars happening right. like hetman <laughs> says like man I'm like this is this is happening with sweden while well, we got this other war going on that i have to worry about you know but he doesn't say you know like those Dirty Russians, you know, <laughs> that yeah, no. I have to fight, you know?
3: Absolutely not. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's a total absence of that. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think, uh, like any kind of, you know, hero's journey like this, you can kind of plug in, uh, any different sort of like look at it, uh, cause it is so, it just, it leans on these moments of like, knowing and being allegorical,
2: especially religiously, but also, you know, I think politically uh, as well. I agree. I agree. You know, there's one other character I really liked in this movie that we didn't bring up because um, he doesn't really play an integral role in it, but I was looking at like what kind of happens in the rest of the movie after this because it's sort of what you'd, you know, it's what you'd expect. Like just a series of battles, gets a couple more head wounds to hit that seven number that they were looking for. And then, um, you know he, he they win and he gets the girl and there's a Star Wars ending where everyone gathers in this big town hall. But you know one of the familiar faces that you know we get to see again at the end when everyone returns, everyone we've seen throughout the film who survived like arrives back in this hall. One of them is this extremely Polish-looking man that uh, the character's name is Zagloba, and he's got how, what kind of mustache is that that were Good. It, yeah, just good. <laughs> the kind that like almost <laughs> extends around his whole head. Squinty eyes. Big guy big nose you know clearly a big drinker and he's got a really funny scene in the movie where he talks about like eating a certain amount of oil and different types of oil to pair with his booze intake
3: well and he says the oil goes to his brain because he he drinks so much liquor that the oil then goes to his brain right and that's why he's so smart
2: right okay okay it's like drunk wisdom shit like he's just like dishing Mm -hmm. like but I read a great little bit because there was this. Just uh, some of the things I keep signing come from this big interview that Poland did, just Poland, Poland country, him, yeah. with like everyone in this movie, because this movie got like a Coppola Redux of sorts for its 40th anniversary. <laughs> they let Coppola cut it. They did actually, <laughs> and uh, he's one of the guy that gets interviewed. Uh, the guy who plays Zagloba, and uh, in, in his little bit, he mentions that when he arrived on set. Um, He says, at that point, I weighed 250 pounds. One day, I got on the set on a small horsey, and a crowd of extras shouted, the horse is going down. (laughs) (laughs) It was the result of the 250 pounds. Mr. Yerzi Hoffman and Wojcik, an excellent camera operator, whispered something, winked at each other, and well... I became Zagloba, so I think he arrived. at Like I can't tell; it's such it's so cryptic because there's no prelude to that little interviewing bit. It sounds like maybe he got cast in the movie because he arrived to the production on a horse that was too small. <laughs> was dying. For him. Yeah, because he was like so fat, and they're like, "That's the guy we need <laughs> to, to play Zagloba." I
3: mean, certainly, yeah. I saw him as like a, a Polish Falstaff, you yeah. know, because he's like this jovial and intelligent knight but he's also just like a total fucking goof yeah. the whole time but you know that man loves the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth and and is on the side of Wolrajowski from the beginning you know when uh, Janusz announces his betrayal at the at the red banquet you right. know right um he's the first one. He, like, throws his fucking staff at the guy. He's like, this is outrageous. (laughs) The Swedes, you know? Like, yeah, he's a a total fucking legend. And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, it's like all these guys around Kamichak are, like, the perfect poles, you know, and, and Kamichek has to get there, uh, over the five hours. And then Alenka comes in dressed as Chewbacca yep. for the star Wars finale. <laughs> yeah. There's this like, I mean, it's the last 15 minutes of this movie are basically a total wash. Cause it's just like a recap, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I kind of respect it in a way. Cause like, They, You know, the the soldiers come into church with like a decree from the king and the priest reads it out. And it's like, Kimiček is the bravest, greatest boy (laughs) of all time. And that's like, you know, it it literally just like hits all the beats of the movie. It's like, and then he saved the monastery. Mm -hmm. He tried to kidnap Boguslaw, you know, and everyone is like... Hear a lot of the people are hearing this for the first time, you know, uh-huh. and they're like, Oh, we thought he was a traitor, but he's actually the best boy. And it's just like a direct decree from the king, and it's just like everyone needs to love this guy. And everyone's like, Hell yeah, and everyone hugs, and Olenka's like, Oh, I was so wrong. I love you. I had fake news was being told to me, you know. Um and yeah, it's all just—it's all just very like recappy and predictable. Uh, and yes, uh, everyone has these great like you know church fur outfits. And
2: yeah. Goddamn. Um, uh, the outfits just spectacular.
3: Yeah, and it's—it's it's funny too. You know, a nice little like cherry on top. I should say the the whole ending isn't lost because then it finally concludes with the sleigh ride ah. that was interrupted in the first 30 minutes of the movie. There's mm-hmm. like this sleigh ride that is, you know, someone comes up and they're like, there's unrest in the provinces, you know, and it's like interrupted and his love is interrupted. And then finally at the end, we're on the sleigh. All the homies are there. Zagloba's there. The lovers are there in their, like, polar bear-designed sleigh. Oh,
2: my God. Yeah, it's like a giant sleigh with a polar bear carved out of wood for it. That, I mean, remarkable. But, yeah, it's a thrilling conclusion. You got everybody—the whole gang's there. All the primary principal performers. Everyone
3: who's anyone (laughs) is in church at the end, and, uh, yeah— The Deluge was the, uh, the or is the the third, or at least of this era. I've got actually a list here I want to share with you. Uh, The Deluge was the third highest grossing film of basically like a 40-year period in in Polish cinema. Um, And I have the list of, this is like the top 25 grossing films in Poland from basically 1950 to 1980.
2: This answers the question, and this is funny, because uh, yesterday (laughs) I brought up, I was like, on Wikipedia it says it's the third most popular Polish film of all time, but it doesn't list the other two. Yeah. Um so it, they must I'll have been you. sourcing this. I and I promised I would I would have the answer and I don't, so I'm I'm so glad you do. What is the what are they?
3: Well, the highest grossing film was The Teutonic Knights from nineteen sixty by Alexander Ford, which is you guessed it, a Sinkovitz adaptation. Ah. It's, it's a Teutonic Knights movie. Yeah. Uh thirty three million. Now the number two film is something I wanted to bring up with you. Because I saw this second-highest-grossing film, In Desert and Wilderness, 1973, by Vladislav Slisicki. This film, my friend, are you ready? 1911 Sinkovitz novel, the author's only novel written for children and teenagers. It tells the story of two young friends kidnapped by rebels during the modest war in Sudan. Two white kids kidnapped in Africa. What do you think that kind of sounds like?
2: Well, it sounds a little bit like
3: dirt. Just a little bit, Just right? a little bit. In desert wilderness. Oh my wilderness. God, that is
2: the, the second highest grossing Polish production of all time. At least of like that 50 years or our whatever. Are poor, poor kids getting captured in Africa? In Sudan, yeah. Oh my God.
3: In Khartoum, Port Said. A 14-year-old Polish boy and an 8-year-old English girl live with their fathers and grow up in the town of Port Said. They supervise the maintenance of the Suez Canal. A Muslim preacher kicks kicks off the war and they're taken hostage by Arabs.
2: Oh, my God. That's crazy because, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> I looked it up just now, and it, 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 almost nobody has seen this movie, at least on Letterboxd. So it's fascinating that like that movie yeah. did so well, but hasn't been as well preserved. Like the daily. Are you sure
3: you weren't looking up the two thousand and one remake?
2: No, I looked at both. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
3: Okay. Well, you know, I guess it's out of fashion,
2: but uh, yeah, this this seems more like yeah, like a. The two thousand and one remake is directed by Gavin Hood. The guy who, who the did like that? Wolverine and Ender's Game. Oh no! Yeah, South African filmmaker.
3: Oh, it's dude, all connected. Turkey. <laughs> Holy shit!
2: Oh yeah, he made the like Satsi movie. Oh, he made that crap. Yeah. Oh man. Well, great work. <laughs> it's another long cinema entry for the books. You know, um, I enjoyed, it was nice. It felt like the almost the ideal length for the long cinema club four hours and 47 minutes or whatever it is you know as opposed to it just like felt like yeah i could do that in a day and we could we still got it
3: yeah and i think it answers the age-old question you know uh when your friend is like you know comes up to you and they're like i'm gonna go see war and peace at the you know the the film center you go (laughs) don't bother
2: yeah stay home and watch The Deluge. Mm-hmm. It's very true. You're not wrong. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, uh, I believe uh, we're back to the regular rotation
2: next week, and it is your topic. That's true. What's up? Well, I did read a very great book recently.
3: Oh, no, not again.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I'll spare the details of the novel. It was uh, Steve Erickson's Tours of the Black Clock fantastic novel it, the the long and short of it is it's about a guy it's like an alternate history where uh, a man writes pornography for Hitler, and Hitler becomes so obsessed with the pornography that he's writing for him that he gets distracted, and then Goring takes over the war, and and they win, and you know, and then it's like these the books about these like branching paths of the 20th century, you know, like what could have been, what are these? It's wild. It's one of the most remarkable books I've I've read in a long time, but it got me thinking about the idea of alternate histories, you know, especially after, you know, I think I was convinced having watched The Deluge where it's like, here is a national myth. Here is a, here is our history. We are depicting a battle that has been depicted so many times in cinema, right? Like staying loyal and true. The costume design's very accurate, that sort of thing. So I'm looking for movies that divert from the path of history. Give me movies where people who have been historically assassinated, perhaps survived the assassination or vice versa, important figures who got shot down, you know, that sort of thing. Well, it doesn't need to just be assassins, but you get the drift. Films that take an established historical narrative and go in a different direction and see what could have been per chance. So alternate history is the the theme for next week.
3: Hope you really wanted to watch Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter.
2: (laughs) Very much, very much.
3: As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com Thanks everyone.
1: My, Jan Kazimierz, Król Polski, Wielki litewski, Mazowiecki, Pruski, etc., etc., etc. W imię Ojca i Syna i Ducha Świętego. Amen. Wiadomo, czynimy wszystkim, że jakiekolwiek winy i kary ciążyłyby na Panu Andrzeju Kmicicu, te wobec jego następnych zasług i chwały zniknąć z pamięci ludzkiej mają, który to Andrzej Kmicic, księcia Radziwila namową, do blędu przywiedział, przejrzawszy nie tylko na majestat nasz,